the Third World War is not a war between nations or ethnic groups and such. It is a war between those who seek greater power and the rest of humanity. A war war of corporations on the citizenry. This type of neo-feudalism, as now suggested, requires the elimination of the middle class. And in my opinion, this is the main and the final goal. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul is talking with Shifu Jonathan Bluestein. Shifu Bluestein is an eclectic scholar and teacher from Israel. He is a graduate of Reichman University with degrees in law and government studies and a student of traditional Chinese medicine at Reedman College. A lover of martial arts since the age of 16, he is a practitioner and teacher of several styles through his martial arts organization, Blue Jade Martial Arts International. His diverse life experiences have led Shifu Bluestein down an interesting path of self-discovery and also to the writing and publishing of eight books, including Research of Martial Arts, The Martial Arts Teacher, and Exceptional Ideas About Humanity. Most of all, however, Jonathan is a seeker of truth who is hoping to complete the mission handed over to him by his soul and perhaps by other powers to be in this lifetime. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind and to live their dreams. We hope you enjoy listening to Paul and Jonathan as they investigate deception. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D. Today, we're going to talk with a guest that I'm super excited to share with you. Jonathan Bluestein is a very deep, (laughs) very interesting, well-educated human being that I'm excited to share with all of you today. I've got two of several of his amazing books right here in my hands. One, for those of you watching, is called Prosperism, which we're going to talk about, and that's in the title. And Jonathan's written what I think to be one of the best solutions for the issues in the world that we're dealing with right now that I've ever seen. And uh, at his suggestion, I read the book yesterday when I really had no time to do it, but I felt I really wanted to see what he had to say because his other ideas are so damn good. So I actually took time in the middle of the day to read the book and, and I was very, very impressed with it. And we'll talk about it. The first book that Jonathan gifted me was Exceptional Ideas About Humanity. Um, and I was actually really impressed with this book. It's just loaded with really cool stuff. And, um, you know, I would go through the table of contents, but we'll we'll talk about it. I just think anybody that wants to really learn about the exceptional ideas about humanity should consider reading this book. So, Jonathan, welcome. And uh, I know I could have talked for hours about all the things that you have as, you know, credible, worthy of credible mention. But uh, Penny will share that. And we'll have already shared it by the time they're at this point in the interview. But I just am super excited to have a chance to dialogue with you on on some very, very important issues in the world today. Thank you, Paul. I'm thrilled and very thankful for the opportunity to be here on the podcast. 
and discuss uh, worldly matters uh, yeah. that carry meaning for all of us. Yes, thank you. You know, Jonathan, uh, with everything that's been going on, there's many people saying that what's been happening with the COVID, what, what I refer to as a pandemic, because that's what it really is, and the Great Reset could be a communist agenda. They Some feel it's moving toward a socialist agenda. Agenda, <laughs> many like me, think it's flat-out tyranny. You described it in our conversation as neo-feudalism, and I'd love it if you can explain your view on these different opinions and how it is that you feel it's neo-feudalism and maybe define why you think it is neo-feudalism and what neo-feudalism is so people can have that perspective. Sure, I'd love to discuss that. So to begin with, I think we live in an age which can be called the age of the invisible kings. This is one yes. of many names. Yes, <laughs> yeah. one of many names we can give to our era. And it is an age in human history dominated by individuals who are often faceless. And we do not even know their identities or we happen to know who they are, but we do not actually know much about them. And if we go back in human history and look at the experiences of our ancestors, People who had similar experiences were those who lived in medieval times. They also, the majority of them, were um, serfs, peasants, uh, people of the earth, who were actually living in the shadow of tyranny by nefarious characters whose identities they didn't even know, uh, which is quite a peculiar way to live. There's someone off in a, at the distance who governs your life, but you have very little relations with them. And I would argue that today, uh, what used to be called uh, monarchs and aristocrats uh, are often what we today name billionaires. Now, that is not to say that anyone who's a multimillionaire or billionaire is tyrannical or malevolent by nature. Uh, far from it. But rather, that is to suggest that if you're a billionaire, potentially you can own vast swaths of land. You do not necessarily have to abide by the laws that govern everybody else. You can make up your own laws. You can potentially have a private military. You have access to resources and especially uh, those having to do with production that other people could only dream of, and you will the financial might of an entire nation, a small or even a medium nation. And potentially, you could have a harem of men or women of your choice by the virtue of just being so rich. I would say all of these things, or some of them combined, form the image of what in olden times would be called a king. And it is apt that uh, we name people and things and phenomena by what they truly are, because the correction of language is an important stepping stone on the path to enlightenment and the improvement of society as a whole. This is, by the way, a Confucian idea. It comes to us from Confucius, who was talking about the rectification of names. 
that if we correct the names that we use in society, then we can also mend society, the language that we use. For instance, uh, I am an Israeli Jew born and raised, and I've went and earned degrees in law and government studies, and I have learned about this concept called liberalism. It is a philosophical concept. For me, a liberal is a person who has a strong belief in the importance of individual freedoms and liberties, and also in the idea that he or she should not infringe on the freedoms and liberties of others. Liberalism has nothing to do with which political party you choose to vote for in the United States. And thus, when I hear uh, many of my American friends use the word liberal in the context of he votes for a certain political party, uh, that is a corruption of language. And I would argue that it is a very intentional corruption of language. Because once you have coerced the public to use the word liberal in order to mean someone who votes for a certain political party, then the implication of this is that you cannot use the word liberal in the philosophical context for which it was designed. So paradoxically, because you say a liberal is a person who votes for that party, now you cannot talk about a liberal as a person who believes in liberalism. It hijacks the meaning behind the word. And I think a similar idea uh, transpires now with regard to uh, what is called the Great Reset, also named the so-called Fourth Industrial Revolution and the United Nations Agenda for the year 2030. Now, this particular um, conspiracy is presenting itself as something which it is not, many things which it is not. Now, a lot of people feel that um, they are not at ease with a discussion of something called a conspiracy. Uh, but actually, the law of history is that where you have governments, they conspire. It is just what it is. I mean, the um, the travel, the immigration of Caucasian peoples from the European continent onto North America and the gradual conquering of North America was a series of government conspiracies, was it not? And the Holocaust, was it not a, a government conspiracy? Can I just ask a quick question? Yeah, sure. Generally, conspiracy is a term used for a theory for which there is no evidence. For example, many people who I've presented information on, uh, be it about what's really going on with COVID, who's behind it, what their motives are, what the Great Reset's all about, etc., have claimed me to be a conspiracy theorist. And I tell them, it's not a conspiracy. I just gave you a mountain of objective evidence, be it scientific studies on COVID, whatever. So could you address that concept? Because, you know, what we're talking about here as a conspiracy is backed by so much evidence now, based on my understanding of conspiracy as that for which there is no evidence. It seems like it's not a conspiracy at all. Well, uh, your question has to do with whom people choose to take their information from. Uh, now, this is a problem that goes back to Western education 
And um, and I would love to go back to neo-feudalism in a moment, so we just keep it at the back of our minds. But uh, regarding what is now transpiring with the Great Reset, yes, the information is out there, but people have been indoctrinated through um, propaganda. Even prior to that, we don't have to go as far as um, mainstream media propaganda. We've all had our, well, not all of us, most of us had at least 12 years of so-called government-sponsored education. And that education has made us at ease with the idea that there would be authority figures who would uh, consume certain amounts of information and knowledge and then regurgitate it and fit it to our mouths. Uh, for example, I would like to um, later discuss Plato's Republic. And the ideas expressed in this very important book, Plato's Republic, um, are always regurgitated into people's mouths, even in law school, when I went to law school. And nobody tells you, go read the damn thing. You have to. And so people are just used to reading uh, the digests and the summaries. And therefore, it's very difficult to convince them since they've been um, accustomed to it from a very young age, that they actually go to the source and see what people have to say. But i give you a, a controversial example. Uh, Hitler's Mein Kampf. Uh, two years ago on a Holocaust Day in Israel, I went and I uh, listened to an audiobook version of it. And I can tell you that there's hardly any Jew around the world who has read or listened to that book which I find very important uh, for people to get exposure to if they're highly educated because it's quite a malevolent and manipulative book. And you do have to be an educated individual in order to contend with the arguments being made there. Um, but, you know, I've been taught uh, about taught information about the Holocaust since I was in first grade. And nobody ever bothers to explore what it is that Hitler actually said which might point out to why he acted the way he did. And there are many clues, but I digress. I want to go back to the topic of neo-feudalism. And what people point to a slogan posited by the um, World Economic Forum. And the slogan made famous because they, they ran YouTube ads on it back in the day, in the beginning of COVID. It was, you will own nothing and you will and be happy. Be happy. <laughs> And my response to that is, let's see you do it first so we know it works. Exactly. Exactly. And we might, <laughs> might, later, in, we might later in the interview get to um, a chapter from uh, my book, Exceptionalities About Humanity, called Ownership is the Root of Prosperity, where I make the counter argument to their idea that owning nothing will make you happy. But people uh, hear this slogan and they are very quick to, to think. That because someone is suggesting that um, the right to ownership of uh, land and resources and objects and one's dwelling place would be taken away from them, that this is a type of communism because uh, communists in different countries have done so over the decades. But there is at least one other form of tyranny um, which acted in the same way but for different goals and with different objectives and management style, and these people were feudal lords, as were once common throughout the world, not just in Europe, but also in Southeast Asia, and in Africa, and the Middle East, etc. Now, 
why would I say that the Great Reset strives in the form of new feudalism and not commons? Now, let's ask ourselves the question. Um, what, first of all, we, we already uh, covered the notion that um, multi-billionaires and billionaires are akin to kings nowadays, if they so desire. And now let us ask the question, what is the difference between the structure of a society in under feudalism as opposed to society in a, in a democracy? Uh, Paul, what, what would you say? Well, right now, I don't think there's any difference. <laughs> Did you watch my video I made, Why Kings Kill Your Children? Absolutely. It was terrific. Well, you see, that's what I'm pointing out. I'm, I'm actually totally in agreement with what you're saying. That's what the whole video was trying to tell people. Look, this, this is the game they've been playing for thousands and thousands of years. And, and as you know, I claim their henchmen were sorcerers because people like Edward Bernays and people that have mastered manipulating the mind from CIA's MK Ultra, etc. I mean, there's just such a mountain of evidence that's being done through social media 24 hours a day. So, uh, you know, I, I honestly don't know if any of us really know what a democracy really is because we've been we've been in Plato's cave, looking at the shadows on the wall, calling it a democracy, not realizing we're in the cave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. Plato is a, is a key figure here, but. Um, I would say if we talk about the um, optimal state, the theoretical state of a democracy, which you may have not completely gotten to as a species uh, up until <laughs> yeah. now, it, it, it's pot potentially still a theory, um, as is communism, uh, both democracy and communism were never fully applied as theorized. But um, irrespective of that, in a democracy, you have a middle class. And under feudal law, you do not. And that is a major difference because in order to have a free market that is substantial and encompassing and which can easily create wealth and abundance, you need a middle class. And what is being enacted now, uh, what some people have called the Third World War, is not a war between nations or ethnic groups and such. It is a war between those who seek greater power and the rest of humanity. A war, of, a war of corporations on the citizenry. This type of neo-feudalism, as now suggested, requires the elimination of the middle class. And in my opinion... This is the main and the final goal. Now, people talk about a lot of other things which are co-transpiring as the Great Reset advances. People talk about the technical issues, such as the elimination of cash or the uh, dubious medical experiments done onto uh, massive populations. But, and, and some people even posit that uh, the end goal is to greatly reduce the number of people on the planet, which is also a possibility. But at the end of the day, in my view, their goal is to enact neo-feudalism. And this stems from a deep, deep feeling of personal insecurity amongst such people. 
and the scarcity mindset rather than as opposed to an abundance mentality. Now, and if we were, if you were to trace back where this goes to in Western civilization, where do the, where are those ideas coming from? The earliest source that pushes in that direction, in my opinion, is Plato's Republic, which I'm sure you've read more than once. I've, I've read quite a lot of it. I've, I've, I don't know if I've read every word, but I have studied a lot. I have it in my library and I've been through it many, many times for various reasons. Hi, everybody. I'm very excited to share some big news with you today. This month, anyone with an internet connection will be able to learn my holistic system of exercise and conditioning. That's because we're finally putting one of my most important advanced training programs out to the digital world. That's Integrated Movement Science Level 1, which is now available online. IMS1 includes my physiological load assessment, postural assessments, stretching and mobility assessments, how to perform corrective mobilizations, instructions on improving stability, and a huge library of exercises, all of which are game changers for any practice. The physiological load assessment alone makes a huge difference in your client results and keeps them from getting injured and progressing more naturally and fully, which results in excellent walk-around marketing for you. Whether you're just getting started in holistic health and performance, or you're looking to upskill, or you just want to stand out from the crowd, IMS1 is the advanced training you need. To get early notification of the course release and win a 10% discount at the launch, please go to the check shop, that's C-H-E-K shop, thecheckshop.com forward slash I-M-S number one online. That's thecheckshop.com forward slash I-M-S one online and sign up. I know you're going to love this program. I've got nothing but excellent feedback for the years I've been running it live and it's super exciting to be able to share it with you online so you can learn at your own pace anytime anywhere you have an internet connection enjoy so Plato's Republic in my personal opinion is one of the finest and also one of the most manipulative books ever written it has <laughs> yeah, how's it that is. for a paradox yeah well I'm, uh, you know, it is a, a very eloquent book, very interesting. Uh, I would like to speak a little bit about its structure. Uh, I went over uh, some parts of it uh, again before the, the interview. So it starts off with, um, first of all, it's Plato. He's the author. But the main character in the book is Socrates, who is the teacher of Plato. And Plato sort of speaks through Socrates. We don't even know whether Socrates believes or believed the, uh, those ideas posited in the book, but this is how Plato is presenting him. And the character of Socrates is about to leave a city with a few companions, and he's called back, and, and some friends say, oh, stay with us, come and visit. And he's reluctant, but eventually he comes and visits. And then he sits down, and he's sort of reluctant to talk, but they say, oh, Socrates, tell us more, tell us more. And he's reluctant, all right, I'll talk. So the book actually puts him in that position of, you know, I didn't want to tell you this, but you asked for it. You guys asked for it, uh, which which is very smart. And I've not seen that plot device in a book which is um, 
essentially, if we were to believe, a book of nonfiction, sort of. And then the story goes and they have all sorts of interesting debates. And the book starts with such a brilliant conversation about what is the proper definition of justice. And after a very long debate, they reach the point where uh, Socrates defines justice and the rest are in agreement. The justice is comprised primarily of two things. First of all, that a person receives what they deserve. That's one aspect of justice. But also that they receive what they deserve and also what they are most inclined and most and best designed or um, best suited for. So in his view, justice is, for example, you were born to be a pianist and you become a great pianist and you can make money out of it and people appreciate you and give you support to be and manifest who you were born to be. And that is the ultimate form of justice. And it is a, a decent definition. But then, after making this fine definition of justice, he goes on to use it in a very manipulative way to propose <laughs> something else entirely. Even Socrates is up to tricks, is he? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, and it really shows you know, how sophisticated the Greeks were because I, I'm, I'm fond of some parts of the, the Hebrew Bible and I've read it in the original Hebrew many a time and there's a lot I can say about it, but in terms of prose, the Hebrew Bible is quite anachronistic in the manner with which is constructed and, and put forth and the way it describes characters and ideas and the... Republic by Plato could could have been something written by you know Stephen King or the likes of whom like a world class author a year ago. It is very sophisticated even today. And and then the, it, well Socrates goes on and says, how about we create a society where there is justice everywhere? And how do we do that? We must create a society with classes, different classes of people. Because some people obviously are born to be better and some others are born to be slaves. And hey, hold on a moment. Justice goes a long way here, right? But by <laughs> that time, everybody in the story sitting around Socrates are already in full agreement and they are also expecting that the reader would be. And then he talks about how do you form this society of three distinct classes and how in order to uh, make it so, you have to hijack their consciousness from a very young age, educate them in state schools, and also uh, posits the, uh, the famous uh, metaphor of the cave. That these people, once when you educate them to fit their so-called social class, and he, his take on a social class is like a caste system in India. The person is born to be a thing, a king or a slave or a soldier, and, and that's just justice, right? Because we said yeah. justice is people get what's proper for them. Well, now what's proper is you belong in a certain caste or some social class. So that deteriorated quickly. And now they should be like people sitting in a cave who are born in the cave. So they've never seen the outside world. And there's somebody behind them projecting images, shadows on the wall. He put up a big fire. And then he projects the, the shadows from the fire on the wall. And the people are watching those shadows and think that this is reality. 
and thus they are entirely brainwashed to believe that reality is what you educated them to believe is, and they're they're willing to remain within their social class and create the so-called just society, uh, which is so interesting because there's people sitting watching the shadows on the wall, thinking this is reality. It's sort of like people watching television nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's totally that. Many experts in um, you know brainwashing and mind control and media and marketing have used exactly that analogy. Yeah, so Plato, who's hailed as a foremost so important, you know, philo- he he's a great author. He's an amazing author. I gotta give it to him. But but he has a very bleak and dark and authoritarian and tyrannical vision for humanity, which might not have even been something that he thought one should actually apply. Because this could the way the the book the book the book goes. You might think that, you know, maybe this is just a thought experiment. He's, he's essentially, in my opinion, Plato is history's greatest troll. He puts out a book with this insane vision for humanity, which is extremely convincing. He sways the readers quite well, but he doesn't tell you what to do with it, and he doesn't put a moral system to match it. So people in the future take this thing and teach it in law schools, and teach it to elites, and now they think that they are the ruling class and they should indoctrinate others in the way that, in the manner that Plato suggested. Now, this is a, a very important book, and I think uh, every listener owes it, to, owes it to themselves to read it or listen, and there's a fantastic audiobook version for free on YouTube. You should definitely go and check it out. I think that uh, if someone were to read it or listen to it, much of Western civilization and and what we experience nowadays and see around us would become far clearer to you because there's a lot of stuff in there. There's even a magical or golden ring that makes you invisible, like the one from the Lord of the Rings. That idea uh. probably came from the Republic. Um, it is also the earliest source that I am familiar with in Western culture, which discusses the idea of reincarnation and how that might work. And that is at the end of the book. And that is an interesting idea because uh, Plato in the book, he says, we got to fool those people and indoctrinate them and lie to them in order that they believe certain things. But that's maybe at the middle of the book. And then he continues telling you other things and you can't tell whether he's lying to you to manipulate you or whether he's <laughs> speaking to you as the elite. <laughs> and only life shall tell. Yes. <laughs> so that's, that's why I'm saying his history's greatest role. These are the things that people aren't very well educated in that are so directly involved in what's going on right now, which is really why I wanted to have you on the podcast, because, you know, I'm a guy who's interested in the etiology or the cause of things. I don't like cutting the tops off of weeds. And as a guy who grew up on a farm, I can tell you that never works and neither does using poisons and shortcuts. And I think it's really important for us all to look at some of the key sources that have really been the foundation, not only of philosophy, but as you said, law, and just the way people view the world, because many people, right, as you rightly said, have only read excerpts that have been spoon-fed to them by people who are only sharing their opinion of something that most of them didn't read, but had someone else stuff it in their mouth. 
And a, a story that Zig Ziglar tells that, that makes this point very beautifully is uh, he tells how he went to a friend's house for dinner one night and she was serving a pot roast. Do you know this story? No, I do not. So she brings the pot roast to the table and he notices that the pot roast had the end of it cut off. Normally it's nice and round and it has a natural shape to it. And he looks at the lady and he says, I'm just curious, why did you cut the end off the pot roast? And she says, I don't know. That's the way my mother taught me to do it. So Zig Ziglar being a curious guy says, well, would you mind calling your mother and asking her why she does that? So she calls her mother and says, you know, I'm, I'm at dinner with Zig Ziglar and he, he noticed I cut the end off the pot roast and he asked me why I did that. I told him it's because you taught me that. So why do you cut the end off the pot roast? She says, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know. That's what my, my mother taught me. And so she, she, of course, reports that to Zig Ziglar. He goes, well, is your grandmother still alive? She said, yes. He goes, would you mind calling her? And asking her why she does that. So she calls her grandmother and <laughs> she says, grandmother, I'm having dinner with Zig Ziglar. And she repeats the whole story. And she says, why do you cut the end off the pot roast? And her grandmother starts cracking up. She says, oh, honey, when I was young, we had a small little wood stove and a whole pot roast wouldn't fit in it. So I had to cut a bunch of it off in order to get it to fit in the stove. And so here it is two generations later, but nobody knows why they're cutting the end off the pot roast. And that is exactly what you're talking about. You know where we see this commonly? We see this in the martial arts. And you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yes. There's, <laughs> so there's a certain teacher, and he taught a guy a certain way. Then uh, the guy teaches another guy and another guy. Five generations later, you realize he taught the guy a certain way because one leg was shorter. Or the guy was um six foot five or he was five foot two and the movement or the, the manner of moving the body suited that particular person but does not necessarily suit the people over the next generations i know a, a fantastic example there's a certain i wouldn't name names a certain lineage in taiwan of internal chinese martial arts uh, which was passed on by someone who was an enormous person quite fat and because of this, he, when he put his, his arms around his body, it was always here, right? Because he had a big belly, so the arm had to be here. He couldn't be close to, to the body. And therefore, they all still put their arms like this. It's all very <laughs> wide, right? <laughs> Even though it doesn't make sense for a thin person. Perhaps if someone is who's the same dimensions as the original master who's long passed away, but and and likewise, we see in martial arts and uh, even in music and in other areas of study and expertise that uh, people get older and they change their practice to suit old age. And then 20 and 30 year olds study from them and they practice an old man's art. Yes, I can share, too. When I was the trainer of the art, when I became the trainer of the army boxing team, which they did because they couldn't figure out how I could compete in triathlon and fight on the army boxing team at the same time. And, you know, we were a full-time military unit, meaning we trained like seven hours, six, seven hours a day, seven days a week. And so the coaches were like, 
and the athletes were like, how in the world can you do that? So long story made short, they said, we want you to become the trainer because whatever the hell you're doing, it's <laughs> something that we, because we, we, we have, a, they had a hard time with fighters running out of gas in the third round. So they wanted me to address the issue. And so one of the first things I ran into when I started implementing new ideas is they kept saying, that's not how we do it. And I said, yes, but the things that you're doing are very, very antiquated and even dangerous, you know, like just billions and billions of sit-ups and uh, skipping rope in the sauna with full wetsuits and plastic bags on for hours to force fighters to lose weight. Uh, and, and, you know, another thing that they used to do, which was ridiculous, was they would feed fighters a teaspoon of honey in the boxing ring between rounds, which will cause a huge elevation of blood sugar followed by a blood sugar crash. And I say, look, no wonder you guys got problems in the third round. They're all having a blood sugar crash. So the well, point of skipping rope in the sauna, that's new. That, that's Oh original. my God. <laughs> you should have seen the stuff I saw. I mean, these guys would be so weak. They would skip rope for sometimes three days because they were so lazy on losing weight. But the point I'm driving at is, so I'm talking to the coaches about this and they're giving me all this resistance and I'm telling them, look at all the stuff you're doing and how outdated this stuff is. And the head coach said to me, Paul, how can you say that? Look how many champions we've created. And I looked him right in the eyes and I said, coach, the bigger question is how many great champions have you ruined in the process of creating a few champions, because since I've been here, I've watched a lot of great athletes get badly injured. And you notice they're not here boxing anymore because they can't fight anymore, including brain injuries from dehydration. So, you know, I, I often say most athletes become successful in spite of their coaches, not because of them. Mm -hmm. And that's the value of tradition in martial arts and, and other endeavors. And um, boxing has uh, enormous advantages, both as a sport and as a martial art. Uh, but it's a non-traditional approach is often a problem in terms of uh, coaching people. Because uh, coaches often entirely change the training scheme between athletes to suit their natural talents. But uh, by doing away with traditional aspects, using the wisdom you know, of earlier generations and reinventing the wheel almost with every new generation, then a lot is lost. Yes. Now, um, one thing I wanted to clear up partially for my own interest and possibly for a lot of listeners as well uh, before we finish that particular section and then if you still had more to say on neo-feudalism, let me know before I move us on. But, you know, you've used the term middle class. How do you define where the middle class begins and ends? In other words, when are you not middle class anymore, you're upper class or lower class? I mean, the term's tossed around and, and I've even used it a, a thousand times, but I've never had anyone really say, the middle class fits in this bracket. If you make more than this money or you have this much freedom, you're upper class. If you have less than this much money, less than this much freedom, you're lower class. So since we're talking about neo-feudalism and the destruction of the middle class, 
based on their own insecurities and, and, and scarcity consciousness, what do you define as the middle class? This is a great question. I think it's uh, very much bound by the culture and the times, right? So, uh, for example, to have an oven in the, uh, in the house um, is not considered a luxury nowadays. Even a poor person typically, most often, has an oven in their house. Maybe 300 years ago, uh, it was a luxury. So we cannot define the middle class by the ownership of certain objects. Uh, we can potentially define the middle class by the ownership of uh, one's own dwelling place and the land on which it sits. But that can, may also differ because, for instance, in Israel, over 90% of lands are actually owned by the state, which leases them to the owner for a period of, say, 99 years or so. And there are all sorts of countries like that. It also happens quite frequently in Britain, as some people may know. And um, Mexico. Hmm. Um, so what is, I think it's easier rather than to define the middle class, to define the, what is above the middle class and below the middle class. Um, so how do we define uh, someone who is poor, financially speaking? Because spiritual poverty is something else entirely. As we all know, a lot of people who are uh, technically financially poor are spiritually blessed and quite wealthy. So that's a different thing. Financially and technically poor, I would say, is when you have to... Your main concern in everyday life is what would be uh, at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah, so, just pure survival needs. Exactly. You're constantly dealing with food and shelter. Doesn't mean you're homeless, because shelter could also be uh, you cannot pay the rent. and You're constantly chasing that rent. Um, food, shelter, uh, access to medicine, and ability to uh, move around, uh, have a freedom of movement. That's very important. Is one of the reasons that um, a part of the Great Reset Agenda is to get get rid of private vehicles because freedom of movement is very important for the existence of a middle class and for democracy. By the way, speaking of democracy, I digress for one moment. I just want to say uh, the United States has never been a democracy. It's just get it out of your lexicon. Like a lot of people go, like, our democracy, this democracy, the United States is a constitutional republic, okay? So go read your constitution. It's a constitutional republic and the republic is not a democracy. Let's go read on the difference. I'm not going to get into that here. But just don't, don't use that term with respect to the United States. It has some democratic ideals and some democratic principles, but it is a republic. Going back on the poor and the rich and the middle class. So I would say I am, so I sort of define what a poor person is. And I would say the wealthy person, how do you say wealthy or rich or well to do or whatnot? is a person for whom um, money is no longer a concern in everyday life. So um, certainly for a person who does, no longer knows exactly how much money they have means that they are wealthy. <laughs> That's if, a good way to define it. Exactly. I've got like, so much money, I don't think about it. <laughs> exactly. Like if, if you have to look at your bank account once a month or once a year, then by definition, you're wealthy. If, if you make plans without regard 
to the financial cost of any plan, then you are wealthy. But it's not a smooth transition between the poor and the middle class and the middle class and, and what we might call wealthy people. It's um, sort of a process, a either a downward slope or an upward climb. And speaking of which, the part of the idea of neo-feudalism is the um, not the complete elimination because you cannot completely eliminate it by the but the hindrance of social mobility because uh, due to the scarcity mindset of those people at the top they're actually driven by the need to assert their security by disallowing others to climb the socioeconomic ladder this is what it actually is about Every single person alive, every single person on planet Earth wants three things in life. They want happiness, meaning, and continuity. Happiness, meaning, and continuity. And we have different ways to get there. Anybody who says they want money, they don't want the money. They want what the money can buy, which can potentially give them happiness or meaning or continuity, or all three or two of them, depending on which one is lack that is lacking, objectively speaking, or subjectively they think is lacking in their lives um now in terms of middle class middle class is the biggest is the thickest layer of the cake that uh, the the in a in a true democracy maybe it's hypothetical a true democracy the poor are a thin layer middle class is a very thick layer and the very wealthy are also a rather thin layer can I interject on that? I've got a phenomenal book right here that I've been studying. It's called The Web of Meaning by Jeremy Lent, and it's absolutely excellent. It's the kind of book I think you would find really good. It's yeah, also an audible. Yeah, well, what, what he points out in the book, he gives current statistics showing that there are currently 4 billion people on planet Earth that make less $7 a day or less and cannot meet their survival needs. So there's only about 8 billion people on the planet, which would suggest that the middle class is smaller than you're saying, and the lower class is much bigger based on those statistics. Mm -hmm. uh, however, uh, we might not be estimating this type of statistic correctly, because uh, perhaps, I wouldn't know, but perhaps the proper way to do it was to make a statistical estimation based on the local culture and population, the given region or a given country. You mean right? based on what $7 a day will buy? Yeah, I mean, um, we, we all know that, for instance, in the United States, uh, what, I don't know, $50 buys you uh, in a day is not the same in Oklahoma as it is in New York City. And, and therefore, um, someone whose wealth is, say, a million dollars, in Oklahoma and in New York City have a different standard of living. If we ignore the culture and we ignore the um, the silliness of, you know, my state is best, my country is best, my my city is best, and we just look at the numbers, uh, you can ha potentially, theoretically, have um, a higher standard of living with a million dollars in Oklahoma relative to having a million dollars in New York City. And that's something else entirely. 
Hi, everybody. I know that you're all aware of the importance of vitamin C. There is a mountain of research on it, but not all C is created equally. I love Paleo Valley's Essential C Complex because it is the real deal, bioavailable. And I wanted you to hear right from Autumn Smith, founder of Paleo Valley, why their Essential C Complex is so unique and something you definitely want for your family and your children. Autumn, tell us about your Essential C Complex. Well, I was shocked to learn as a holistic nutritionist that 90%, over 90% of the vitamin C on the market is derived from genetically modified corn, and then it's processed with highly volatile acids. And so I knew I had to find a better way to get all of the powerful benefits of vitamin C. So what I did was I dove into the research and I found the three most vitamin C rich superfoods on the planet. That's unripe acerola cherry and camu camu and omla berry. And then I just packed them into capsules. And the benefits are amazing because you're not only getting vitamin C, but all of the other wonderful benefits that come from these amazing superfoods. So to get access to this complex, all you have to do is go to paleovalley.com and you can use the code CHECK15 at checkout. That's lowercase c-h-e-k 15 and you can save 15% off. Now, uh, going back on the topic of neophytalism once more, one more thing I wanted to mention is a book titled The Decline of the West. The Decline of the West by a person whose name was Oswald Spangler. This is a book, I believe, from the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, Paul, you with me there? Yeah, I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with the book. Uh, I've heard of it, but I've never read it. So when you put it in there, I... Uh, was curious what you'd have to say about it. I've only heard people mention it, but I know if you're mentioning it, something worth hearing about. So please enlighten us. So Oswald Spangler is this German fellow who was, I think, uh, a teacher of mathematics, of all things, uh, <laughs> who was uh, what you would call an amateur historian, but actually a much better historian than those we see in the academia, uh, such as a pop historian, Yuval Noah Harari, who is now working in the service of those malevolent uh, Great Reset forces. Again, um, I'm, I'm not um, speaking ill of him. He is officially working as an advisor for the World Economic Forum. So um, this fellow, Oswald Spangler, wrote this book, um, The Decline of the West, in which he posits a new and fascinating theory about the course of human history, which I don't think anyone has brought forth before him or since. And he looks at different civilizations. We had the Aztec civilization, the Inca civilization, uh, modern Western civilization, Greek civilization, Roman civilization, Chinese civilization, Japanese civilization. And he says, you know, what makes those civilizations tick? And he reaches the conclusion that there actually is a theme there is a singular idea which encapsulates the essence of each civilization. So I'll give some examples. If we look at the ancient Egyptians, and these are the examples given by Spengler himself. The ancient Egyptians were all about this idea of a linear life process and a story. A story which has a beginning, a middle, and an ending, and a post-credit scene after the ending, after death. And the Egyptians celebrated this idea that life is a journey like that of a boat on the Nile. 
they actually religiously spoke about the journey in that way. And what are the stages of the, the journey? How can we build temples with enormous, magnificent murals that describe the journey, where it started, where it's going, where it ends, and what's at the end? And that's it. It's a linear journey, and it's a wonderful thing, and that's how they saw it. And the Greeks, and following them the Romans, which were a, a civilization which continued the Greeks, the Greeks and the Romans are infused together, though they're not exactly the same, but they are follow-ups. The Greeks and the Romans had this idea and theme of beauty and the beauty of the human form and the way in which the macrocosm is represented in the microcosm through the idea of beauty. So this idea of macrocosm inside microcosm is also found in Chinese civilization, but the Chinese did not express it in the same manner as the Greeks and the Romans. Now, how do we see this? idea of beauty in the human form we see it in that they liked nudity and they found nudity to be natural and wonderful and a cause for celebration much like the, the egyptians celebrated the journey of theirs and the the greeks and the romans would wrestle in the nude and after the men would wrestle in the nude they would massage one another now you show me outside of the realm of gay porn a group of men who are professional wrestlers who wrestle in the nude and then give each other medical massages. That's uh, hardly to be found nowadays. And that's because we have a very different conception about nudity and the, and the human form. As a matter of fact, one of the remnants that we have from those civilizations is the beautiful sport of bodybuilding. And you go to the average person on the street and they either mock bodybuilding or they find it grotesque. And, but if I were to, to ask an ancient Greek or an ancient Roman person, they would be astounded by these people. And they would be like, why are you wearing that fog on stage? Take down that fog. Show everything. That's great. <laughs> so That's funny. And nowadays, a lot of us are saying, uh, oh, you know, Western civilization is a continuation of the, the Greeks and the Romans. And uh, Spengler argues that this is incorrect. In Spengler's view, um, they had their theme and concept, and we are about something else entirely. Our Western civilization, which he calls Faustian civilization, uh, revolves around the concept of infinity. And how do we express infinity to the utmost? We see it with the space race in movies such as Inception, and Interstellar, which are some of my favorite films, this idea that we can go to as a Buzz Lightyear. The toy says, infinity and beyond, right? Yeah. Infinity and beyond, that's us. That's Western civilization. But uh, to remind listeners, Oswald Spangler also refers to, uh, he titled this his book, The Decline of the West, which means he doesn't have good predictions about where this is headed. And what does he mean by that? He says that every civilization has its core theme. And then at some point, the theme runs, runs out of ways to express itself. So we begin to recycle our own ideas. And at that point, we begin to decline. Now, it's very interesting that, that this decline does not necessarily have to do with a technological decline. So 
he sees the Greeks as the um, is the upscale climbing of that culture and civilization, and the Romans as the drop. the The entire Roman, uh, the entire Roman period, in his view, is the decline. Maybe perhaps most of it, but throughout uh, the time of the Romans, there had been many technological advancements. So it's not about how technologically advanced we are; it's how how much culturally and spiritually advanced we are and can we continue to progress and what happens is well first of all the culture and the civilization does not entirely die but rather it becomes absorbed by um its descendants its cultural and civilization descendants and moreover that what happens is that gradually over several generations another theme emerges and replaces the previous one and I would go to say that uh, a prophet has yet to be born to tell us what would be the theme of the civilization which is going to inherit us, modern Western civilization. And when I say modern Western civilization, um, we should all bear in mind that this is a civilization now encompassing the entire globe. Because, I, you know, I lived in China, for example, for six months of my life. and see the local Chinese are often uh, more zealous about eating at the McDonald's and the KFCs uh, as opposed to their eating their own traditional cuisine, which is everywhere, traditional restaurants everywhere. And the young people say, we don't want old things. So everybody is adopting this modern Western civilization and everybody are going to be a part of its decline, which is going to be a very long process in Spangler's view because he sees that process as being a, a thousand-year-old cycle, give or take of a rise and a decline. And he was pointing to the beginning of the decline during his day, which is the beginning of the 20th century. So it's going to take us a few more centuries to fully decline and transition to something else. A couple of comments I want to make and and maybe points to dialogue a little bit on. Um, A number of historians and experts that I've studied have said, even to this very day, that the Roman Empire is actually what we're still living in, and that the feudal kings are thinking as and functioning as along the exact same lines as the Roman emperors did. And two, the and and our and the structure of our legal system and the way things are done is very similar. Um, the other thing is, is that you're speaking of in regards to Spengler. Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell, among other experts on mythology, have all stated in many places in their works that whenever a culture's myth goes into decline and they lose their sense of their mythic connections to the meaning of life and and, and all the things that a myth can give, which I won't outline because it would take too long, that usually there is a great breakdown and there is what's called a mythic transition and the emergence of a counter myth. Now, the Great Reset agenda would serve as a counter myth. It's an idea that is antagonistic to the middle class. It's antagonistic to our freedoms. It's antagonistic to the entire way we live, even though it's an absolute lie because the people that are behind the Great Reset are also the people that own the largest, most polluting, and most dangerous corporations. 
that are destroying the planet and nature. Well, they say one of the reasons for the Great Reset is to protect nature and that we'll only be able to visit it using virtual glasses and all this kind of horseshit. But the other thing is, is that all the experts on myth fairly unanimously agree that it's not a prophet that brings in a new myth. Myth. It's poets, it's musicians, and it's artists and shaman. And so because of that, and because we're speaking about the guiding myth of, a, of an entire culture, but as you said, we've now seen the westernization of all cultures. So the, the, shall we say, the myth of the Industrial Revolution or the myth of the American dream or the myth of democracy or the myth of freedom is breaking down for many reasons. So the big question is, what is the new myth? So I would have to ask you, when you look to the poets, the musicians, the artists, and the shaman, what do you see emerging that signals or gives indicators or symptoms of a new myth that will essentially, uh, potentially start transitioning into the way we live? Because what what is consistent in the history of mythological evaluation is that wars and destruction are the common effects of a breakdown of a myth. And Jung says whenever a myth breaks down, you see the, the, the rising of isms everywhere. And he uses Hitler as an example of the breakdown of the Western civilization's guiding myth. And Nazism is an insurgence of trying to take advantage of something that's already begun to crumble. And we can see isms all over the place right now. Even veganism is, is in my opinion, a mythical attempt to cr try to create meaning amongst people that need something to stand for that's bigger than themselves, even though it's in my opinion, very confused on many levels. I would say that is that is the ideological veganism as opposed to veganism as a personal choice. Exactly, yes. Yeah, veganism as a movement as opposed to a choice based on you know, certain uh, moral ideas or uh, dietary understandings. Well, even even the moral ideas are often very, very confused. I've addressed it in a long series of podcasts called Vegetarianism Inside Out that I did with my senior instructor, Matthew Walden. Part one is on my podcast, and the other four or five parts are on chakiva.com, and we went through this in great detail. But the only proper application of veganism, in my opinion, as a therapist with a lot of experience dealing with health, disease, and everything else you can think of, is that it actually is what your body wants and needs in order to bring your body into harmony. And any other application of it either becomes a philosophical or a ism application. So speaking of isms, you said you Positive, the counter, the great reason is being the counter myth. But let me ask you. I'm saying that it, it, it's with the amount of propaganda they're using and the way they're imposing it, 
they're forcing a counter myth because it's going against what we consider to be freedom and the American dream and all the things that our mythical story, our, our story of what makes meaning for us as, as, as particularly as Westerners, but as people that have rights and freedoms and believe in autonomy of self and the ownership of their own things and the right to be work as hard as they want to and use their smarts to become wealthy. So what I'm saying is just because it fits that the Great Reset is the insurgence of a counter myth, but instead of it rising from the prophets, the shaman and the artist, it's being imposed upon us, which really puts it in the place of an ism because it's much more like Nazism than it's like anything else. Okay, so so I had a very important point here. So, okay. I would like to first answer your question from before. You said, what might be the next theme for a civilization? And just briefly, I'm no prophet, but potentially... If we see the, the infinity and beyond right now goes to the outside, right? Yeah. Outside of ourselves, outside of the up. Potentially, That's a mistake. <laughs> potentially That's a mistake. the next one would come inside and in. And That's exactly what my new book's about. You hit the nail on the head. And by the way, I don't know of any prophet that ever announced that they were a prophet. So you might be more of a prophet than you're giving yourself credit for. <laughs> Let's see. Let's let uh, people 300 years from now to decide. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and certainly, Paul, you're much more of a prophet than I am. If well, anything. Th- that would see there again. I'm I'm in the position of having to trust you on that. But you know, the the the, the great frontier is the internal frontier. You know, there's a great book called The Erotic and the Holy uh, on Audible by Mark Gaffney. And he really speaks a lot of the Hebrew tradition, the Kabbalah, and their uh, mystical beliefs about love and Tantra. And he talks a lot about the fact that the erotic is, is an inner experience. And it's, and it's, experience, it's an experience of the divine but that when people rely on sex to get their erotic needs met, that it becomes very limited and it leads to things like pornography, excessive masturbation, and empty sex that, that doesn't really carry a lot of love with it. And so people keep getting hungrier and hungrier. And so they fill themselves with food and, and consumerism and buying stuff to medicate themselves all because they don't realize that they're not engaging true eroticism and i really think there's a lot of value to to that perspective but you know because the size of our galaxy let alone the universe is is you know comparably infinite i mean there's many people that doubt we've even been to the moon i happen to believe that we have because i've had chance to be in the presence of edgar mitchell and i know he devoted his life to the study of consciousness and he walked on the moon and with all my truth fibers in me i don't think edgar mitchell would ever lie to people about something so fundamental when he devoted his life to higher consciousness but the point i'm making is it's a hell of a long way even to get to the moon so when you're dealing with a potentially metaphorically infinite universe and every time we build a bigger telescope it gets bigger then 
we, the mystics, if they've taught us anything, and one thing I've learned from my own mystical practices is that everything that's out there is in here, but you know, you, you only have to go from your head to your heart and from noise to silence to make the journey into the infinite. But we're so externalized with all of the gadgets and all the media and all the constant searching outside. I mean, I look at Elon Musk and all these guys building rockets and putting tons of money into satellites and turning space into a junkyard. When I'm like, why don't we put that money into educating ourselves into the inner arts and learning Be inner because, harmony? Because infinity and beyond, Buzz Lightyear. We, uh, the, right. the, the society feels very strongly that we must go out there. It's, a, it's the opposite of going in here. But the trend is reversing. I, I would like to point out anyhow, um, because we digress so much, and you, you mentioned Nazis which is something that I've studied deeply. And, you know, uh, many people also call uh, the, the Great Reset folk and the World Economic Forum Nazis. And that's quite common. And in my opinion, this is also highly inaccurate. Now, they believe certain things that are in common with Nazis. Uh, for instance, eugenics, the idea that uh, you should control populations and control what people are going to be born and which people are going to be to, to die in order to change the genetic makeup of the species, which in their case may or may not be motivated by racism. I do not have proof either way. But my point to make is that they are not Nazis because Nazis is Nazism isnism. And the great recent agenda. UN Agenda 2030, the so-called Fourth Industrial Revolution, is not an ideology. It only pretends to be so. And that is very important. It's part of why we can take, why and how we can take it down. Why society can oppose it. Nazism was a full-blown religion. The Great Recent Agenda only pretends to be a religion. And it fills a void. Now, Nazism was an organized religion. P3OM by Bioptimizers is hands down one of the most important supplements to have on you everywhere you go. If you're traveling, if you go to work, if you're going to friend's house to eat, this product will knock out food poisoning and almost any kind of gut disorder from viruses, bacteria, fungi, whatever could irritate your gut so quickly. It's mind-blowing. I have been using this product since Wade Lightheart first turned me on to it, and he's the formulator of it. And I've got Wade here to tell us how it works, but I just want you to hear it from me. I have all my clients use this. I try to get it to friends, to family members, because it is really like your own bodyguard. So, Wade, how in the world does this thing work so well every time? Well, as you know, we're very research-oriented, and we have literally a university in Croatia that we do microbiome testing with our labs of PhDs to find out what's the most effective formulation. And we are quickly moving into the post-antibiotic world where we need to cultivate super 
probiotics. We all heard of super bad bacteria in hospitals and stuff that are antibiotic resistance. But what we did, we worked with a medical doctor that was able to take an aggressive strain of L. plantarum, which is a very aggressive strain, and then put it through almost like a BUDS camp, a Navy SEALs training where we subjected this particular probiotic to a toxic environment. We ran a sine wave through it. And out of that survived only about somewhere between 2 and 3%. We then take that and grow it on very special food. We feed them just like you would feed a great athlete. You feed them special food. And the probiotics develop unique capabilities. We have a U.S. patent that is so powerful, I can't read it on the airwaves because we'd get canceled. But what I can say is when you put P3OM in your body, it goes out and breaks down any undigested protein, whether it's in your gut or through your blood system. And it becomes your Navy SEALs defense force, if you will, to go out and wipe out whatever pathogen might come in your body. You just need more of these guys to overwhelm it. It takes it out. It cleans up any messes. And for the last 18 years, I've been using P3OM daily. And I can honestly say, I've never been sick during that time. If I feel something coming on, I just double down my dosage, take four caps every night. If I get a little, if I'm traveling, I take twice that. And it's been great. A lot of our people do it. And it's one of our best-selling products. And it's available to your audience. Just go to p3om.com slash living40. Put in Paul 10, get a 10% discount. And if it's not the best probiotic you've ever had in your life, you get 100% of your money back. That's from us at Bioptimizers. That's our guarantee for you. Go get it. It's for real. I love the stuff. Thank you, Wade. We must go back. This is something we, we were intending to discuss later. Go back to Nietzsche. And Nietzsche, said, Nietzsche having said in the late 19th century that, you know, God is dead. I went to his funeral. And <laughs> yeah. In, yeah, he went to his funeral. Yeah, at Nietzsche a Catholic was, church, no doubt. <laughs> And, and by the way, I was reading Nietzsche uh, recently. I think it was Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Yes, uh, I've I, studied it. I, I've looked into uh, modern translation and read the few, first few chapters. This book is amazing. It reads it's very like, good. Uh, like a very deep Taoist parable. Very deep. Yes. Jung, Jung spoke about it at length, and Osho did an entire series called Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which I've studied extensively. I have probably, I would imagine, a hundred pages of notes on it. And I think Osho did an extremely good job of, of his expose of it. But uh, go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Yes. So Nietzsche was saying, God is dead. I went to his funeral. By that, he meant not that God has physically or energetically or spiritually died. Uh, but rather that humanity has, or certain forces in humanity, have made a concentrated effort to eliminate the presence of godliness and also of organized religion from the daily lives of the people, um, in which God and organized religion dwelt for many, many centuries, not just in the West, but uh, all over the world. Now, what was this... Replaced with, they made an attempt to replace organized religion with something, and it is quite challenging because organized religion is something which organically develops over hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, and gives answers and directions and laws for just about everything under the sun. 
for ever, anybody who's familiar, for instance, with um, religious Islam or religious Judaism, there are ceremonies and rituals for washing your uh, your hands, for cutting this piece of chicken as opposed to cutting a carrot, for lighting fire, for lighting fire on a certain holiday. It's so extremely detailed um, to, to the level of obsessive compulsive disorders. But the, the upside is uh, you are not left with any questions. It's very difficult to question because there are answers supposedly for everything. As a matter of fact, in, uh, in, Israeli, in Israeli Judaism, in, here in Israel, a person who adopt, re-adopts a religious lifestyle is called Choser Betshuva. Choser Betshuva is uh, someone who has returned in an answer, has returned to the answers. And th- that's someone who's adopted a religious lifestyle. Now, in order to replace organized religion, we brought forth a, a trinity. That of technology, capitalism, and scientism. Technology, capitalism, and scientism. Each of those three caters for another, for a different uh, area of life. So technology is for technology, capitalism is for finance, and scientism is supposedly for the big questions. So why are things the way they are, how they work, and how we can make it, make them a certain way? The challenge is that those systems are tools and are not as comprehensive as they pretend to be. Neither was organized religion, but at least it manufactured answers. And these instruments, technology, capitalism, and and scientism, which is science as a religion, do not produce answers for most things under the sun. And thus, uh, people are left with a spiritual void. And this has been the case from the beginning of the 20th century. This is the exact spiritual void, which was then hijacked by the Nazis and is now being hijacked by the Great Reset Agenda. So it's very easy to transform everything and anything that is in the everyday life experience into something that's a pseudo-religion, pseudo-organized religion, such as... um, Climate change, um, uh, care for the environment in general, uh, dietary issues such as veganism, um, monetary causes, vaccinations, anything can be turned into uh, something that might potentially fill the spiritual void because people are so desperate, they just grab at anything. And, and this is why it works so well, but this is also the thing's downfall. Because it's the same as it was in Soviet Russia, when the masses were given something to fill the spiritual void, but they were it's like eating empty calories. You're still empty on the inside. It never satisfies you. So eventually it's bound to, to implode. The manner in which it would implode and the time at which that would happen is still a mystery. But it's an unstable system exactly because it's not an ism. Now the Nazis, on the other hand, if Hitler wasn't so insane, as much as he was a genius in other ways, if he if he hadn't atta- if Hitler hadn't done two things, if he hadn't attacked Russia, and if he hadn't gone to kill all the Jews, it is quite possible that that the Nazis would have taken over um, much of the world, if not the entire globe, over time. It's because of those two obsessions of his that they lost primarily. So. 
the Nazis were much stabler, far more sophisticated system of indoctrination, organized religion, as compared with the Great Reset Agenda, in my opinion. What we see here is not an ideology. It's an attempt by a group of greedy people with a scarcity mindset who are shaking on the inside. They're a bunch of cowards who are attempting to basically do a hostile takeover with psycho advanced psychological manipulation and advanced technology. But these people are not driven by a religion or a real agenda or a real ideology. Just pretend to. Yeah, no, there's a point you made that I want to... <laughs> I want to highlight and hear what you have to say, but it's very, very important. What you said is that one of the functions of religions is to answer all your questions. And science attempts to do the same thing. But here's the problem. When you program people to believe that you can get all your questions answered within the context of a religious book like the Bible or the Torah or any such book, then what happens is two very dangerous things. One, you stop thinking for yourself. Two, you remain unconscious because you're just acting out program behaviors, and now we're back to that pot roast that keeps getting cut off, and nobody's actually thinking. They're just doing what mother did and what grandmother did, and only grandmother actually knows the reason the roast is cut off. So when you start using books to tell you how to eat, how to dress, how to have sex or not have sex, what music to listen to, what days of the week to worship, and most people paradoxically, haven't studied world religion, so they haven't come to the realization that, oh, well, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist and you're doing what God tells you to do, you worship on Saturday. But if you're any of the other 33,000 derivations of Christianity, you worship on Sunday. And if you, and I wrote an article on this, if you look at all the restrictions on foods from all the world religions, and I actually made a pie chart showing them all, you end up having nothing to eat. But the paradox is they all claim to be giving you the word of God and what God wants. And as soon as you describe what God wants or what God needs or what is, you kill God because by definition, God is that for which there is no other. And you can't know what God wants until you become God. And at that point, there's no you there to know anything. So you can't know anything about what God wants. The closest you can get to God is the experience of love, and anything else is just a dangerous idea that leads to all the kinds of problems religion has started and continues to do so today. But when people keep referring to somebody else's doctrine and somebody else's book to get their questions answered, and they keep referring to scientists instead of actually investigating on their own. For example, the speed of light is, is taught in every school as a constant. But all you got to do is look at Rupert Sheldrake's work. And what's the name of his excellent book? Um, anyhow, he goes through 10 key principles of science that are taught in universities and around the world and shows every one of them is wrong. And he shows that the speed of light is not constant and it fluctuates. And he gives you exactly the measurements. And he even refers to uh, a scientist or scientists that monitor the speed of light. And it is not a constant. So, the 
the problem is that when, when you keep people in a state of unconsciousness, you have sheep herd mentality, and then you run off and you get vaccinated with something that you have no idea of the scientific validity of it. You have no idea of the contents of it. And the next thing you know, people are falling dead on football fields, soccer fields, basketball courts, pilots dying while trying to fly airplanes, kids dying. How many, how many were there? Like over 400 athletes last year, something like that? I think, I think the total now is up to around 800, which is, you know, yeah, these so are the most... Over two years, probably, yeah. They're, they're, they're the fittest people in the world, and they're dropping dead like flies. But the point I'm making is that's what happens when you remain unconscious. And Jung spoke extensively about how religions and corporate agendas keep people unconscious because they're very, very suggestible. If you, a hypnotist puts you in a state of unconscious, making you highly suggestible and getting access to your entire memory bank and things that you don't even know that you have memory of. So when you keep people in a hypnotic trance, then you can easily control them. And that's what, what I warn people is the danger. I have nothing against real religion because real religion, you know, if you'd study the history of Christianity before it was corporatized, it was often referred to as the religion with no name. Jesus was not a Christian and Buddha was not a Buddhist. Buddha said, don't believe anything I say, try it for yourself. That's real teaching. That's real religion. But once you start corporatizing all this stuff and turning it into a belief system where you have to follow rules and regulations and you keep looking to books for whether or not it's safe to masturbate or how much sex you have or what you should be eating, now you're just a controlled robot. And they were doing this long before computers were around and now they're just better at it. And we're at a major crisis because we have lost the ability to think for ourselves because we keep getting our questions answered by other people, most of which don't know any better than you do, which is why we've been talking about Plato's dialogues being taught in law school and passed on to everybody else. But most of the professors haven't even read the book themselves. They've just regurgitated what somebody else told them. It's the same thing in medicine. I've been running into this my whole career. And I say to people, when are you going to actually start thinking for yourself? I tell my students all the time, don't believe a word I say. Practice it first. If it works, then it's your knowledge. If it doesn't work, come back and see me and I will check your technique, your rationale, or your approach. And so far, every single person that's come back to me trying to tell me that something I taught was wrong, wasn't doing it correctly. And when they did it correctly, it worked. And that's why meditation is so important. That's why the inner arts are so important. And that's why understanding what education really is is so critical. We, have, we don't have an education system. We have a brainwashing system. We have an education that's system that teaches you what to think, but does not teach you how to think unless you're one of these rare lucky people like my children that go to a Steiner school where you actually learn how to create and how to think. So uh, I would like to hear your comments on that in regard to this whole situation we're in and, and to the conversation so far. Well, I have a few thoughts here. First, a funny metaphor from the world of martial arts. I have a friend, a colleague of mine, Shifunil Ripsky, is a martial arts teacher from Canada. And he spent a few years living with his martial arts teacher was he was when he was younger he was living in his house and they would train and spar every day and they'd go down to the basement and do sparring with all different weapons 
And the teacher would tell him, this very old school Chinese teacher, just like, pick a weapon off the wall. And then he picked the weapon and they would spot with whatever they chose that day and learn that, learn that uh, weapon against weapon combination. Now, uh, I remember Neil was telling me the story. At one point, he picked a weapon and he was sort of, and they did some work with it and he said, our Shifu, you know, Shifu is uh, the traditional name for a teacher in tr- uh, traditional uh, Chinese relationships, just so people know. In uh, um, a master and apprentice uh, relationship in China, uh, the apprentice would call the teacher Shifu, as opposed to Lao Shi, which is like a sensei in Japanese. In any case, so Neil asked Shifu, uh, we don't have a movement form for that particular weapon. It's like, how do we practice it? And he said, like, oh, we don't have a movement form? Why won't you create one? Just create your right. own. Come on, just do exactly. it. Exactly. And <laughs> it's so rarely said in in martial arts, you know. And you know, with respect to what you were saying earlier, I mean, I think people have to start someplace. You come at people oftentimes, Paul. You're used to these highly educated, intelligent people coming to the Czech Institute to study your fantastic programs. And these are, um, I would say, they're somewhat ahead often, somewhat ahead of others in society in terms of the work they've done on themselves. And for the average person, they have to start with something. In Chinese language, we have the term called Gong Fu. Gong Fu is not, a lot of people think Kung Fu is a type of martial art. It's actually a cultural term, which means a skill, a significant level of skill acquired through continuous practice over a long period of time. So in China, if someone is a good chef, let's say he has great gong fu, he's a great chef. That guy has great gong fu, he's a great architect. And she has great gong fu in singing. Could be in any type of skill or a craft or a system of thought even. Someone can have great gong fu in philosophy. I believe that a person must first have this one thing, one thing that they earn their gong fu at, that they could excel at at some capacity. Excelling at doesn't mean that they're world class. Doesn't mean that they won the national competition. Doesn't mean they have to compete at all. But they have to reach a decent level of skill at something before they can learn other things, understand the complete picture of life and the universe and their place in it. It's like a language. Um, a child is capable of learn, learning, a young child, two or sometimes three languages at the same time. But the child cannot master them. By the end of the day, a child must eventually master one language before he can master the second one, then the third one learn more. And this is true to, to all types of skills. So meditation is wonderful and important. Martial arts also. There are many things that can be good for one's life and, and understanding and spirituality. But by the end of the day, we got to start with one thing. Fix one thing in your life and then go from there. Yeah, so you don't learn you don't learn the stages of mastery. You don't learn the process of mastery. If you keep bouncing around all over, you become a jack of all trades and a master of none. And when you study this one thing, it is very important, in my opinion, that there is also at least one thing in your life that you studied as an apprentice under someone whom you personally recognize as a master. doesn't matter what it is. could be home cooking. could be growing plants in your porch. 
study in a traditional context as, a, as an apprentice, as someone who comes to another person for many months or preferably many years on end and gains from their wisdom and has a, what is called in the Orient, in China and in Japan, a heart-to-heart -heart transmission yeah. with that person. Which is actually the function of the word guru. That's, that's what a guru really is supposed to give you as a heart-to-heart -heart transmission, not only of their wisdom, but of their capacity to be open, centered, and whole. And if you look at the hero's journey, the first thing that happens is the hero has some kind of debacle, some kind of uh, crisis that has to be solved. But then to go on the hero's journey, he's got to find a mentor and learn what he's got to learn or she's got to learn in order to navigate creating the resolution to the challenge or the crisis. Um, there's something that you mentioned there that I wanted to expand on a little bit. You know, Jung said, all religions are designed to protect you from the direct experience of God. I'm bringing this up because when I was mentioning what I said earlier, you talked about the importance of, you know, having a mastery in one area and that people need something to get started on. And when you look at how a mind works, we all get indoctrinated as children into the ways of our family, the ways of our, uh, their religion the, or, or not religion, atheism, whatever philosophy, we, we have to come into the world with the people that we're with and, and get programmed with a set of ideas that allow us to interface with our environment. Because for example, if you were, if you were just born with, uh, software that made you Chinese, but you're in an area where nobody spoke Chinese, you wouldn't be able to navigate. Nobody would understand you. You wouldn't understand them. So when religious, when, when, when Jung says religious systems are designed to protect you from the direct experience of God, what he's really saying is very deep and most people aren't, aren't skilled enough or schooled enough to understand it. When you are born and you're indoctrinated into a religion, you're given a set of programs in your mind that are inevitably going to create conflict. And that conflict is when you begin the hero's journey, which really is essentially the same function as puberty, where you begin to reject your parents' ideas because the children are always one generation removed from the parents and they don't have a head full of rigid ideas that prefigure their perception of everything. You know, if the old saying, if all you got in your pocket is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if, if all you've got in your head is a set of ideas that you've been using for 30 or 40 years, but you haven't noticed how the environment's changing, you get the same dilemma that happened when I was younger and computers first started to be, be popular. And it got to the point where if you didn't know how to use a computer, you pretty much couldn't get a job anywhere, but people hated it because they were stuck in their old ways and they resisted and resented computers. And many of them just fell to the wayside of society because they weren't willing to upgrade. Now take a parent with the same mindset. Well, if children behave that way, then uh, nobody that makes computers would have any money because nobody would have bought them and technology would not have advanced. 
you know, so now you have kids that by the time they're six years of age have to teach their parents how to use their iPhone and how to use their computers because they're far more open and advanced and they're receptive to new concepts and ideas. But when a child goes through puberty, it's a filtration process where it says, mom and dad's ideas about sex are outdated. Mom and dad's beliefs about God, they're not, they don't serve me. I feel like I'm in a straitjacket. Mom and dad's ideas about food aren't working for them. They're both unhealthy and out of shape. And mom and dad's ideas about exercise aren't working either. But mom and dad's ideas about morals and ethics and about how to manage money have worked well for them. And I can see that that's worth keeping. So we go through this filtration process. So what, what religion does is it actually builds an ego by giving you a bunch of ideas that help you identify who you are as an individual and who your group is. So that's the egocentric level of consciousness. And then the ethnocentric means my group. And most religions are ethnocentric. It's my group against your group. That's what religious war comes from. But once the person reaches a level of spiritual maturity and individuation where they realize that they're what's written in the books and what people are doing around them isn't getting them the fulfillment in their heart or the, the filling the emptiness, that's when their hero's journey really begins. And that's when they have to begin to lose their mind to recreate their mind. So. Jung saying that all religious systems are designed to protect you from the direct experience of God. The direct experience of God is complete annihilation of the ego or the mind because God is beyond mind. God cannot be conceived of as a mental construct or you have an idea. You don't have an experience of God. But looking at that from an educational perspective, you could say all programming helps you build an identity which then becomes limiting becomes stifling and in order for you to reinvent yourself you have to go beyond the ideas that you were programmed with and that's where an inventor comes in that's where novel ideas come in that's where your martial arts teacher says well then quit asking for a form invent one use your own intuition use your own creativity quit being stupid <laughs> Hi, everybody. You know, Symbiotica just came out with a new product that I got to test, and I want to tell you about it because a lot of you are like me. you got some aches and pains. You know, I've been around for a while and been thrown off horses, motorcycles, and all sorts of things, and there's an area in my body that hurts quite a lot due to having two discs blown out, and that's my lower cervical spine. And Shervine just showed up to visit me with his beautiful partner, Jamie, and handed me this bottle of Ultimate Pain Balm. And he said, Paul, try this. And I put it on my neck and within seconds, my pain was gone. But even better, I felt like all my chakras are opening up and I'm being tapped into nature. So, Shervine, what did you do? <laughs> How did you do that? Because this is really good. It smells amazing. I mean, I don't really have words. I, I, I might just go mute here because I'm smelling it and it's taking me into some mystical journey. I mean, <laughs> I mean, look look at the color of it. That it's is beautiful. It looks that, like a, a, a turquoise. What turquoise? Maybe. Yeah, kind of. That's a that's called blue tansy, uh -huh. which is a very very rare uh, flower. Yeah. And we use the essence of blue tansy. It goes with pain relief. Mm -hmm. Blue is cooling. This is an organic artisan blend of some of the most powerful topical medicinals in the world, and its ability to penetrate and create immediate effect 
is is just absolutely stunning. Yeah, and it's acting on an energetic level immediately. It, it really does. And you know, for s- people that are having breathing issues, children that are having breathing mm-hmm. breathing issues, instead of the Vicks rub, which is filled yeah. with chemicals and all kinds yeah. of stuff, you put that on the chest, put it anywhere on the body. Sometimes I put it a little bit under my nose. It yeah. opens up my sinuses. Mm-hmm. It's very potent. So, yes. So someone like, you know, men, we don't want to like Put that on our fingers and put it in our private area. If you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, you have a hot rod. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's it's a journey. It's never been done before at this level. Mm-hmm. It's sitting in Myron glass, just like you know most of our stuff. Yeah. And I'm very, very, I'm very happy with where we're at with this. People are having the best reviews, and it's a go-to for me every day. So it's great for muscle pain, joint pain, anything else? Burns, cuts, anything. Any- restricted breathing. Yep, restricted breathing. Put it on the chest. Headaches. A lot of people are getting cluster headaches because they're not mineralized properly or they're out of alignment. This can open up those senses and allow clarity. I look at it as it opens up the highways of life from within. Plus, it's hard to get a good pain balm that's all organic. Absolutely. It's it's nice to know you can put something on your body that's clean. I can tell you, I tried it. I'm not easy to impress. And I'm sitting here right now with no pain in my neck and this feeling of a fullness of energy. And uh, it's definitely worth trying if you want a, a little backup in your toolkit for when things are aching or if you have some old chronic stuff like I do. So go to com and on checkout, use the code CHECK15 to get your 15% Living 4D discount. You will find this very impressive. I sure did. This is your medicine journey. There it is. You are speaking about something that I would personally uh, start referring to in recent years, the re-examination of so-called ancient ideas. Now, by that, I don't mean necessarily ideas that come from many generations ago, but that are ancient in your life and in your cycle. Like the week. I, I have a fantastic example from recent times. So last week, um, after class, I was sitting with students and giving them a lecture about something. And had arisen this topic of the use of recreational drugs and also of ayahuasca. Now, I personally do not use any drugs. Now, what is a drug? I mean, I take a lot of Chinese herbs, and these are types of drugs. Drugs could be a lot of things. And I drugs also- are, drug by definition, Jonathan, a drug is anything that modulates the function of a cell. So every food you eat, anything with any chemicals in it, sugar flour, water, they all modulate the function of a cell. So by definition, everything is a drug if you really want to be technically accurate. But I understand what you mean, and so do the audience. You mean mind-altering drugs is what you're talking about. Yeah, but I I, I agree with you. And despite not, it's not that I've not taken drugs. I've I've taken some drugs, but um, it's not my thing. But nonetheless, I do support the full legalization of nearly any and all substances, except for the ones that are especially specifically intended to do harm onto people. Now, uh, one I have this one student, I wouldn't name him, is a fantastic person, a great student. And upon hearing this, he was, he felt a little bit, you know, ah, uneasy, you know, ah, like, and he said like, Shifu, are you pushing us to take drugs? Because if you're pushing us to take drugs, I, I might not want to return to class anymore. It just screwed it out. It didn't really mean. 
we love each other. He's, he's, he didn't really mean it. But it, it just instinctively came out of him. And I asked him, I questioned him a little bit, and we had a back and forth, you know, what makes him feel that way about drugs? And he said, well, you know, uh, these mind-altering substances, they attack your nervous system. And I don't want anything that attacks my nervous system. And he repeated that several times as we debated the topic. And I realized... He's brainwashed. I, I realized, indeed, and I tried to very gently nudge and point him in that direction, that this is an idea he had gotten with, probably when he was very young, potentially when he was in kindergarten or in elementary school. And this is what I deem an ancient idea. It's an idea that's so ancient in your psyche and in your personal education that you cannot even remember where and, and when and how you had gotten it. Could have been someone like 30, 40, 50 years ago who told you this. And now it's ingrained in you. You believe in it, but you don't know why and how, and you never re-examined it. And which is why it is vital that we re-examine those ancient concepts and ideas that we are not aware of often until they come up in conversation or in meditation or in some other context. And then we realize, oh, what? what is this thing? This has nothing to do with who I am today. Why am I still saying things like that? Where did that come from? So this relates to um, a Zen Quan that I really like, and I've taught to my students many a time. So for those who don't know, uh, Paul is familiar with it. The Zen, uh, Zen, of course, is Zen Buddhism, is the uh, Chan Buddhism as practiced in Japan and now worldwide. And a Quan is a question or a poem, or a short story to meditate on in order to eventually reach a certain type of specific enlightenment or an understanding. And so many people know, like, oh, um, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And of course, all the Westerners go like, go like this, with <laughs> clap one hand onto itself, which is not what is being meant. Oh, there's another one. If a tree falls down in the forest and there's nobody there to hear it, does it make a sound? It's an interesting one to ponder. But the one that, uh, that I want to discuss here briefly is the question, how did you look like before you were born? Which is immediately answered by the silly average listener as, well, I look like a fetus. <laughs> and wow. of course, the question is not like, it's not about uh, whether you look like uh, a nice fetus or an ugly fetus before you were born. Question of how did you look like before you were born means how did you look like before the world shaped you to be who you are now? So uh, when people are born, they're not born clean slates, but I won't go into that now. But until about the age of six, six, seven, eight, depending on the person, this is the time when the first chakra is most dominant, the root chakra. And people are still very connected to their uh, authentic selves, which is why kids until the age of six, seven, eight are the most authentic forms that there will ever be. They say what they think, what they believe, what they feel very authentically and without regard to what others would think or say often. And then gradually, as we develop onto the second chakra and we bring and two concepts arise. The first chakra, we are just one. We are one thing. We're one with them, ourselves, and we are also one with our mothers. 
which is why young children always hide behind the the legs of their parents and especially the legs of their mothers and they always want to go to their mother and if the mother is crying they're also crying and even if they watch television uh they would uh have imitate the emotions of the person that they see on television because they can't see a difference between that person and themselves they are the rest of them the rest of the world are one that's one then when we progress to second chakra then the one becomes two that's the order of creation of all things, as described in Taoism, as described in Judaism everywhere. So the one becomes two and then be eventually becomes three. That's with the third chakra. And when the one becomes two, we have the two ideas, yin and yang. But they're not yet merged with one another. They are still separate. And at that point, we begin to see ourselves and the other. And then when... Um, Later, we grow into the third chakra. The yin and the yang begin to discuss. And we learn, okay, how do we correlate those two forces to work together in an integrated way? But not as one as before, but as an integrated one. There are two forces, but they work together. So um, when people transition from their authentic selves at the level of first chakra, into the second chakra and then the third chakra, they lose much of their authenticity. And then later in life, if they do work on personal integration and individuation, then they bring themselves back on into the question of what did I look like before I was born? Which means what did I look like when I was, when I was just born and when I was in the stages of first chakra as opposed to second, third, maybe fourth chakra? Paul, what, how do you see this? <laughs> That's a long answer. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, if you ask me what did I look like before I was born, my answer would be a mirror with nothing before it. Hmm. <laughs> That's a great answer. I think if you were to go to the abbot at the temple, he'd give you a pass. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, if he didn't, I would give him some DMT. <laughs> <laughs> and say, here, investigate for yourself. You know, as Terrence McKenna says, you can either sweep the monastery floor for seven years or do one hit of DMT. It's up to you. I'm not promoting DMT. It's very dangerous. I've known six people now to die using it. But I've made it there through Tai Chi and meditation. Uh, I've made complete penetration into non-duality. And so the reason I gave the answer that I did is because God is the ultimate living mirror. Everything in existence is God expressing itself in form and behind form is no form. And so what is a mirror? That which reflects anything before it. But if you have a mirror with nothing in front of it, then you have nothing but pure potential. And ultimately, that would be my answer. Before I was born, I was pure potential. And the world dreamed me and everybody else into existence. But one of the things I wanted to get to, because I'm very curious, and, and, and I want, we only have about 15 minutes left. You wanted to tell a story, and I believe it's called The Whole. And you felt it, it addresses a lot of the issues of corruption today. Would you like mm -hmm. to tell that story? Yeah, that's, sure. That's from your book, Exceptional Ideas About Humanity. 
I, I think that would be a great way to bring our dialogue together. Now, you and I have only kind of touched on less than half the questions, and and I, I personally really enjoy dialoguing with you, and I love your depth and breadth of knowledge. So um, I'm just going to call this part one of a potentially unknown number of of podcasts because I think I think it's important for people to hear people like you that has got a degree in law, has a deep, deep understanding of martial arts and spiritual developments, traveled the world. And, you know, you're, Jonathan, one of the reasons I love you is, is that you're like me. You don't just take people's word as it's written or just because they say it. You go investigate things for yourself. And, you know, that to me, that's real knowledge. One of the things that drives me the loopiest is people that just regurgitate stuff out of books and pretend they really know their stuff. And I've had many, many students come at me with thousands of arguments that they were so dead sure of. And the first thing I do is I ask them, how many people has that really worked for that you can bring to me in person? And I've never had a single one of them be able to bring me any objective evidence. I say, you're, you're, what you're doing is the reason the education system is failing. If you really want to be educated and have a dialogue with somebody like me, then don't just cut and paste shit from some book and pretend you know what you're talking about because you're going to be faced with a real challenge. People are going to expect you to be capable of demonstrating that knowledge in practical ways. And when you cannot do it, then you're going to actually put yourself in a very dangerous position that can ruin your credibility. So that said, tell us the story of the whole. Momentarily, just uh, a few words prior to it. I just want to say uh, the whole is a story about the corruption of society for several generations over a recurring theme. So this is a continuation of the things that I've been talking about with regard to Plato's Republic and Spangler's view of uh, the development and the decline of civilization. And the story fall, uh, follows three generations of people and then successive generations and the manner in which a lie and the keeping away of a truth can shape society to transform entirely in unpredictable ways. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's do a reading. The hole. In the beginning, there was a hole. After all, a hole is the typical receptacle for secrets. The time was when the country was first established, and the young man sought to hide his family's jewelry. The government was collecting all things gold from the citizenry, but the precious items that the man had were the heirlooms of his ancestors, and he did not wish to share them with others. Yes, the country was a democracy, but also a poor <laughs> one. Yes, the man was patriotic, but risking his life in the War of Independence seemed sufficient, sufficiently patriotic. The hall was thus filled with the Julia Adams. As commonly happens in life, morality and justice 
are as murky as the wet soil with which the hall was covered. That man sadly died from illness a few years later when his son was but a boy, as we are here the second generation of the son. Necessity bent the arm of nostalgia, and so that jewelry from the hall was sold, and the family bought and built a business with the money they had earned from the transaction. Over the years, the business flourished, became a nationwide monopoly, and the family enriched itself beyond measure, all with the money yielded by their departure from the jewelry, which was once hid in the hole. Decades passed. The son of the man who dug a hole became the chief of the nation's intelligence agency, owed partly to the terrific education received from expensive private tutors in earlier years. And of course, the jewelry from the hall covered those tutors. The son remembered that the true treasure is to be placed in a hall for good luck. Therefore, the son, who was the head of the intelligence agency, reminding you, decided to dig a hole, a really big hole called a bunker, <laughs> to safeguard all of the nation's top leadership in a time of great crisis. That place, borrowed deep in the mountains, was unceremoniously called the hole. <laughs> it would have served to keep safe from everyone else and those which were prized by the state. That and those which were prized by the state. In honor of his father, the son placed a small picture of him near the entrance. For his deed was the original inspiration and enabling force behind the initiative. To have a hole, man, this huge hole, the bunker, yeah? To have a hole dedicated for the few, supposedly so that they could rescue the many, mm, is ethically dubious. But as commonly happens in life, morality and justice are as murky as the wet soil with which the hole was covered. A few more decades passed. In the era of the grandson of the man who once hid his jewelry, the hole has long since expanded to become an entire city. Initially, a single room was added for the storage of documents from the Bureau of Statistics. Then a large cavity was shaped to have a formal dining hall. The swimming pool, school, cinema, theater, and finally, the zoo. <laughs> These all came later. Each addition catered for the needs and pleasures of the occupants, as it was understood to be unreasonable for the treasures to be kept in a most inhospitable place. As whole city, as whole city already grew bigger, neither was it acceptable that it be unkempt or disorderly. The personal secretaries were the first to enter in the secret of things, for their presence was requested. In time, the families of the nation's leadership also needed room. Coming in last, even the great artists and chefs 
of the country were locked into contracts to serve whole city when called upon. Now, a pity was developed in consideration of whole city. Oh, what a pity that such a wonderful place be used only in those rare and unforeseeable occasions of utmost distress, which indeed may never even come upon the nation as its military was mighty and intimidating. So thus, whole city began to host those in the know on a regular basis. In the beginning were bi-quarterly meetings, and eventually a weekly gathering was the habit. Yes, uh, many people knew of whole city. Many indeed had entered it. A few thousand people, was it not? But within a nation of many millions, they were perhaps not as numerous, those in the know. What else? That none of them was allowed to speak of it. The secret of the whole. Its revelation was an act against the state. Also known as treason. An offense punishable by death. Well, at least theoretically, as the state had not executed any person in 50 years. But the threat of telling others about the whole was sufficiently sufficient to induce the necessary fear. And besides, to know of whole city meant to partake in that glorious establishment, to be a member of that most illustrious of social clubs, and who would want to give up on such a status? Indeed, there was no one to be found to reveal the nature of whole city for the benefit of the rest of society. Inspired by the original whole, which expanded into whole city, in time, every ministry of the government demanded to have its own whole city. And then every large municipality desired likewise. In several generations, dozens of whole cities were dug. Not that their dwellers preferred the underground lifestyle entire. Oh no. Now, most of them would have loved to remain basking in the sun. But <clears throat> the many whole cities required an industry. And that industry had long since polluted the air and the water. The powerful economy, which had once enabled the construction of whole cities, was by then in shambles, as the politicians were busy allotting and allocating resources to these tunneling pet projects of theirs. Quite literally, the resources of the land were excavated, processed above ground, and then reinstated beneath the earth, until not much else could be used. Even the food now had to be grown where once not even the roots would reach. Finally, the ordinary citizenry had mostly perished, and the people of whole cities who were born and died in such places had entirely forgotten about the existence of the surface. When a handful of them occasionally traveled up every few months, the journey was treated as if they had been visiting another planet. A novelty for the brave and the foolish. A large portrait. A large portrait. The breadth and width of several people hung at the center of every whole city. It always looked the same. A man in his 30s 
rugged and farmerly, with bright eyes and a big smile, leaning over in his backyard, bearing golden objects. That's what the painting always looked like. His name was long ago forgotten, but the people knew that he was the forefather of their underground city-states. He was thus nicknamed Grandpa Digger. (laughs) Every year on Digging Day, every year on Digging Day, each child would take a small object of affection to go and take it to one of the deepest caverns and bury it there without telling anybody where he or she had put it. That the children were educated from youth of the importance of keeping secrets from others was once questionable, though by then, a tradition. But as commonly happens in life, morality and justice are as murky as the wet soil with which the holes were covered. I love it. It's so, uh, there is, you know, when I look at that as a therapist and looking, looking at it archetypally and symbolically, that, that, that's a very powerful archetypal story that can have many, many meanings, all of which can be seemingly different yet very true. You know, for example, you ha- he had to bury his treasure to protect his rights and freedoms. He didn't want to give it away to the, to the collective or to the king. The whole can represent the unconscious, which is unconscious, but yet it's what's doing most of the creative work that creates everything. We got 30 billion billion biochemical reactions a second that are all directed by the unconscious mind. So as Nisim Harriman says, the unconscious should really be called the conscious. And since the conscious is very narrow and limited and gets us in a lot of trouble, it should be called the unconscious because people that act unconsciously when they're using saws, power tools, cars, and drugs get themselves in a lot of trouble. So the story could be looked at from a Jungian perspective or a depth psychology perspective as a story of the constant back and forth between the conscious and the unconscious and the attempt to find oneself realize oneself, individuate, know what it means to be whole, have a self, and realize yourself as part of something bigger than yourself, but not lose yourself into it. So it also can be a story of the the vacillation between yin and yang energies, yin, dark, in, the cave, the whole yang expression out. And so you see how the 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 whole was the dark place of secrecy but then it ends up being something that everybody ultimately ends up knowing about so i could go on forever but what what a powerful story hi everybody i sure hope you're enjoying the podcast today you know it's said that most people are either in too much of a rush to prepare fresh organic greens be they vegetables or green fruits like fresh green apples and end up grazing on inferior foods but it comes with a cost nutrient depletion, reduced capacity to handle stress, reduced immune resilience, and you age more rapidly. But Organifi comes to our aid again with an amazingly tasty, nutritious addition, their new crispy apple green juice. But it's more than just another apple drink. It's packed with your favorite adaptogens and superfoods, 
Some key features of Organifi's new crisp apple green juice are delicious taste from organic crisp apples, organic whole apple sources hand-picked, including Golden Delicious from Washington, Northern Spy, Macintosh, Ida Red, and Empire from Ontario, Canada. The new crisp apple green juice is formulated with the highest quality ashwagandha at an effective dose of 600 milligrams for helping your body handle stress more effectively and it's low sugar only two grams per serving but the taste is amazing for such a low sugar drink just add water mix and experience the joy of real food real fast go to organifi.com o-r-g-a-n-i-f-i.com and save 20 percent on organifi products when you enter your living 4d discount code capital c capital h capital e capital K, 20 during checkout. That's check 20 for your 20% discount on Organifi products during checkout. Enjoy Organifi's new crisp apple green juice. What do you think the relevance to that story is to our situation right now in the world? Well, first of all, just a few sentences about what inspired me to write it is that in the middle of Tel Aviv, we have a place called Hakiria. Hakiria is literally an, an anachronistic term for a city, the city. And this is an enormous military complex in the midst of Tel Aviv. Every Israeli knows it. And it has a place in it called the Hall. <laughs> so the city with the Hall, yeah? And they recently expanded the Hall to have a, a, a new series of Halls. <laughs> because... They wanted to sell the real estate uh, to build uh, residential and office buildings there. So they put everything underground. And I, I was looking at the hall a few years ago as they were constructing. It was like, did you ever see a hole that's like 20 stories deep? It's amazing. And it, it was wide and enormous. So, and the more they dig those secrets in, the more, the more of a deep state we have. Like a, literally a deep state there dug deep in there. Yeah, so that's what's what's sparked the the original idea for writing that particular story. And I should note in my book, exceptional ideas about humanity, there are only a handful of short stories. The rest are uh, nonfiction chapters. Now, uh, how is this story relevant to our time? It shows exactly how the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset uh, Agenda operate. They intend on building those holes. I bet they literally are building, you know, they have bunkers. Oh, yeah. Yes, exactly. You build this hole and it's like a black hole in the ground. And the black hole has its own gravity. So it collects other people into it. But they don't want everybody to get in the hole. There's no room for everybody. So they just want to bring in the chefs and the artists and some other people they like and put them there. The rest can just basically burn. And then after the people on the surface burn, what are they left with? They're left with themselves, all the shitty people with major issues all together inside those halls. And how does society <laughs> develop, you know, when, oh when they're all in there together? And, and the interesting thing is, it's all driven by a single lie or a single deceit or a single hiding, hiding act that itself is motivated by tyranny. So, a person is asked to, to give away something which is very near and dear to them, the, the jewelry of their ancestors. And they have to hide it from those forces 
but by because of that they so there is a new ancestral dynamic being created initially the jewelry themselves were the ancestral dynamic but then the tyranny which has led one in to put something in the hole has created this karmic process that could transform an entire society much as in the case of hitler as many believe that in the first world war when he was a soldier uh, he be, he was injured by the the gases, toxic gases used by um, the the armies which were fighting Germany, perhaps by the French or the British, and that drove him mad. Prior to the First World War, Hitler was quite an average person and had artistic aspirations. And following the First World War, he got mad and and became this eventually became this insane dictator. And courage could have all been driven by just this one vile act of using gas on the battlefield. Transformed the lives of everyone on the planet. That's an amazing thing. And I'm fascinated by this process in history of how one, one act could shape the destiny of many indirectly. And sometimes we can point to that one act and sometimes it's an, it is entirely unknown. And of course, we are shaped by many different forces. And I don't want to mean that a single person or a single act are the only things which shape history. Because in my view, I would like to say that we are also shaped very much so by the heavens, by the sun, by the solar system, by uh, the, the planets and the earth included traveling within the galaxy. These are also powerful forces affecting history. And Paul was just having a very interesting discussion uh, with an astrology expert, Paul. Uh, what was his name again? Pardon, I forgot. Yeah, Ernst Wilhelm. Um, so anyone interested can just look for my podcast with Ernst, E-R-N-S-T, Wilhelm. Yes, and, and, and Mr. Wilhelm, who is an expert on real astrology, is unfortunately uh, much of astrology nowadays is charlatanism. and probably has always been, and it's fine. Much of most professions is charlatanism at any given time. <laughs> so that's fine. Uh, but Ernst has given uh, an overview which might interest some people as to how the heavens could potentially be um, a shared factor in the development of people and societies. Yeah, what a fantastic dialogue. And, 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 and thank you, Jonathan. What, what, one thing I would like you to do, if you can keep it uh, brief because otherwise I'm going to not get to eat lunch and I'm hungry. I had a hell of a good deadlift <laughs> session this morning. Um, can you give us three chief action items that anyone that listens to us to this point can say, okay, I've sat down with Paul and Jonathan. They've talked about a lot of things that are very deep, but very real. But what are three things anyone listening can do to take advantage of what you've shared today so it becomes real knowledge for themselves? Just three. <laughs> well, I think, I think three is enough. Most people have a hard time doing one. All right. First of all, invest or continue to invest in Kung Fu. Mastery of something. Yes, Matt, strive for the mastery of something because this process by itself will carry you forward no matter the obstacles, no matter the uh, the conditions. 
this process by itself will drive you to acquire better education, to test yourself, to change your sphere of influence and the people by, by whom you're surrounded and find your place in society. And so that is one, it's very important. Second of all, do not be afraid of civil disobedience. It is your right, your born right as a human being to live your life to the utmost. And remember, this is Plato's definition of justice, right? What is uh, appropriate for you and most suitable and the, basically the full expression of who you were truly meant to be and also uh, what you deserve, the combination of these two. And therefore, if you practice Gong Fu, it would require by itself also that you use civil disobedience when due. And I'm not saying go spit in the face of a police officer. That's not what I'm saying at all. I am saying do not do things which are contrary to your true and genuine nature as a human being. That is what I'm saying. And for civil disobedience, you do not need to necessarily exercise violence. And you not, do not necessarily need to do this in a provocative way or even necessarily in a way which would get you in trouble. But another way to say civil disobedience here is stand your ground because the ground is shaky right now and there's a big flood coming. And that flood is sweeping those who do not have roots, spiritual and physical roots, and those who would not stand their ground, who think that, that swimming with the current would get them somewhere, but they would uh, go most likely in the very long term or even the short term would drown with the current. Amen to that. Third, find and invest in community. Community is not necessarily the people with whom you've interacted for the past 10 or 20 or 50 years. Community are the people who are now willing to be your true friends and to work with you towards a better future. In COVID times, we have all been exposed to the inner truths about most everyone which were around us. There were a lot of people who have chosen to be, so to speak, on the wrong side of history. Now, of course, there would be people who would say that Paul and I are on the wrong side of history. That is for history to decide in the generations to come. But this is subjective. This is rel relative and relevant to you. So invest in mastering, in Gong Fu. And stand your ground. Be civil, be civil, but disobedient when it pertains to sustaining and maintaining your personal autonomy in the face of a big flood. And third, invest in selecting those community members. And that means also sifting out those people whose actions are contrary to your personal wealth and well-being and interests even if they've been around in your life for a very long time. And I'm not talking about people who 
disagree with you about this or that. That's fine. We all have disagreements. Paul and I could also find many things that we disagree on. It means people who act contrary to your health and well-being in the short, medium, and long term. But also, not just sifting out people, but also bringing people in and finding those souls that whose beliefs and whose spiritual paths match yours in this in these difficult times okay and these three things also pertain to awareness please be aware they have there have been times in human history and in human societies when things were calmer that you could afford to say i don't want to listen to that and and i hear a lot of people say like i don't tell me don't tell me i want to know about trap I want to know about the Great Reset. I just live my life. It's all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. And you know what? Sometimes I myself, I would disengage for a day or two or three because sometimes it's too much and that's fine. But don't shut your ears and your eyes and certainly not your mouth. And don't let anybody else shut your ears or your eyes or your mouth. You have the right to listen and to see and to speak. And anybody who says otherwise does not think or act in your best interest. And you must realize that this is a time when people come from the outside as invaders to take away your rights and you take away who you are. But if you have a core and if you invest in maintaining your core and being in touch with it, then you will persevere and most likely sustain yourself for this difficult time. And I want you to all to remember and this is very important. I wanted to say this from the beginning of the podcast. If we were uh, the citizens of, say, the country of Poland, especially Jewish Poles, but not just them, any Polish citizen living in the year 1939, September of 1939, at the eve of the German attack on Poland, the Second World War, things would have looked bleak at the level of this is the end. And later, when people even were taken to ghettos and concentration camps and death camps, they could see this as the end. But some survived. Oh, the, the, the occupation of Poland and the ghettos and the concentration camps and death camps. I'm not saying we're there. But some of these things might come about in new forms, not in the forms they were before. And at those times, people were thinking this is the end. And those who said that this is the end, typically usually did not survive now they could not see what we see today that across the ocean the americans were there to eventually come over and help out the war effort they the, the war effort they could not see that hitler would be crazy enough to attack russia and that the the brits would sustain for several years of very harsh warfare they could not see any of it because history is unpredictable and the enormous flood being enacted right now by Schwab and Bill Gates and Soros and all of their companions and Albert Bourla, the CEO of Pfizer, who's often and not often enough spoken about in this context. These people are pushing the envelope, literally. They're pushing it, might reach the end of the table and, and topple over. They, if you look at the Taiji symbol and there's a young, the, the correct way is the young coming from the left and then transitions to yin on the right. Nothing can stay young forever. The Nazis did not stay forever. This tyranny will be over with. 
in six months or a year or five years or 20 years. Even the Soviet Union was over with. Nothing lasts forever. And you can persevere and sustain yourself through this. And if you live through this and it still continues, then your children, grandchildren, thanks to you. And do not give up on your humanity and do not give up on the idea that humanity can prosper and can have wealth. Don't fall into what they believe in, the scarcity mindset. Don't believe that children are bad for this world. Believe in your ability to generate a better future. And by so doing, you have a much better chance to come out with the stronger, on the stronger side of things when this is all over and done with. And you will live to tell those tales for future generations so that hopefully we would not repeat it. Jonathan, that was a bullseye. Those are three of the most important things anybody could hear or do right now. I can't thank you enough. I feel that was the perfect close to this podcast. And if I was tasked to come up with three essentials that everybody should adhere to, I would have been grateful if my mind had come up with the same three things you just shared. So thank you very much. I'm looking forward to, honestly, I'm, I want to do lots more podcasts because pe people don't know until they start looking into your work, how deep it is and how much you've covered. I feel like we just, you know, had a scratch and sniff experience of what we can get to with you. So I will be in touch with you and we will organize more podcasts on things that are relevant for what's going on in the world right now. Love to hear more of your teaching stories. Where can people find your books, your teachings, and any services you'd like to offer? Thank you so much for your kind words, words Paul. I've been following Paul's work for at least 12, 13 years now, and it means a lot when someone such as himself is almost a, like a distant mentor of mine. I've been speaking about his work with my students for so long, and it's just a blessing. Thank you so much, Paul, for these wonderful words. And well, to hear to hear from a guy like you that I'm your mentor is pretty wild for me. So thank you. <laughs> and, and as for your question, um, my books are available on any Amazon affiliated website. Uh, so Amazon.com, .ca, .co.uk. Um, some of these books, for whatever reason, in the search engine, if you write their names, uh, you wouldn't find them. So best is if you just write my name in the search engine, Jonathan Blustein on Amazon. And then you'll see my author page and all of my books are listed there. Jonathan Bluestein on any Amazon affiliate website. Otherwise, my official website is bluejadesociety.com. Bluejadesociety.com. There's a lot of information there, both in Hebrew and in English, about my teachings, my martial arts, our organization, my books, etc. Also, um, probably over 100 articles that I've written and published are linked to there. Excellent. Jonathan, thank you. I totally enjoyed this with you. I love the depth of it. I love the sharpness of your mind. I love the way you look at things from different angles. And I love the practical application of it all at the end. So um, I'd like to close by saying thank you to my sponsors for all your love and support, your excellent 
products and your sustainable business and being a great example to other businesses in the world. Thank you to all of you listeners and subscribers for your love and support and carrying the information that the guests and I share on the podcast into the world. I think it's obvious we need to spread the love as fast and effectively as we can. And um, one of the most important things Jonathan said is when people lose hope, that's the end. And, you know, if you study the life and teachings of Viktor Frankl, who survived Nazi concentration camps and went out into the world and wrote several great books and helped countless people heal and grow, there's a great example. So, you know, I think this is a great opportunity for us to all really become self-sufficient, use our minds effectively, think critically, stand up for our freedoms and our rights. And as Jonathan said, we don't need to be violent, but we need to have roots and we need to be clear about the difference between a law and a mandate. And as I tell people all the time, if a law is unlawful, by definition, it is criminal to follow it. Absolutely. If a law is unlawful, it threatens your sovereignty and your constitutional rights and freedoms, then by definition, it is unlawful to follow it, which makes you a criminal. So I stand with freedom, truth, and real justice, and I will not follow any law or mandate that is unlawful. And all you got to do is look at what's happened to the people that have, and that should be plenty of handwriting on the wall. So, Jonathan, thank you. You're amazing. I send you lots of love and gratitude. And thank I look you forward. So so much, Paul. And by the way, for uh, people, I, I just forgot to mention, if you're interested in martial arts, you can also write my name on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel there with a martial arts related podcast and other contents. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Lots of love. See you next time with another excellent podcast. At least that's my dream. Jonathan, I'll have you back as soon as I can get you in here. We still have <laughs> lots to talk about in our outline for today. So I think we got another podcast to, to get through right here. But uh, I'm excited to share more of you and learn more from you. I love talking to you and reading your books because they're fascinating and so are you. So big hug and uh, talk to you all soon. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Shifu Jonathan Bluestein. You can connect with Jonathan via his website, bluejadesociety.com or on Facebook at Bluestein. Follow Paul on Instagram at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living 4D with Paul Check. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to Czech videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, chekiva.com. You can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcasts.